Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton, and today I'm here with part two of our conversation uh, with Hayden, and we're talking about post-liberalism as it compares to fundamentalism and uh, liberalism, but also how it fits into uh, recent philosophy and the movements uh, known as radical orthodoxy and nouvelle theology. You've hit this, and let me let me say some stuff here. And if you if you think I'm going too far, rein me in. And that is that what we're dealing with. I, I have a, a kind of picture of things that uh, I think that you can read the history of human thought as a kind of activity in the way in which we're describing it. That there has always been this sense in which we would imagine that in some way language is the thing that we have, and maybe that's all that we have. And you can do one of two things with language. That language just refers back to itself in a kind of circular system, and that language is everything. Or that language refers outside of itself, but what it refers outside to, in some way, we do not have access to. That is, that it's the noumena it, I think that's what idolatry is, in fact, that idolatry does not really give us access to that thing that is idolized. If you're familiar with most idolatry, what's actually happening is the idol is a kind of impossible object. You know, if you think in Ezekiel, the phallic symbol is not, oh, we're going to go have sex with this big, huge donkey-like phallus. That's, that was never it. It is that this phallic symbol is erotically impossible, that it's sensually, sexually, literally, in other words, the sex metaphor, it is a metaphor of something that is beyond the ordinary realm of human desire. And so in some way, we need to ecstatically be delivered over to this other realm. And I think that's a lot of mysticism, bad mysticism, in some way uh, imagines God In other words, in some Christian circles, I'm afraid that maybe it's still a kind of apophatic notion. In other words, those are the two possibilities. And of course, both of those are wrong in terms of what Christianity is. That language is not just a circulating system of signs in which, you know, if you think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this is actually the way that Augustine, I think, rightly pictures it, that it's just a the good is through the evil, the evil through the good. You have whole religions that picture the world in that way in which it is the kind of Manichaean picture of which it is a dialectic and you just play out the dialectic. Or you picture it in terms of there's nothing that you can't get outside of language, but the whole impetus is to do that. You can't get outside of the world, but you're, you know, and this is where death in some way and dealing in death and sacrificing your children. You can translate this into a modern understanding of the sacrifice of other people that in some way this is made a necessity. I think you can just narrate the history of thought and human thought. And of course, what I'm narrating here is fallen thought. But there's only these two possibilities. Now there's an infinite variety of ways of playing with those possibilities. I think that's what you're getting in uh, Marxism and deconstruction is, is just the recognition that we can play with the possibilities. If you want to put it in psychoanalytic terms, 
that this is really what Lacanian psychoanalysis is saying, that these are not just possibilities out there. These are the ways in which you yourself are constructed as a human subject, that there, there is the ego. Well, what is the ego? The ego is in some way the image. The image then is visual. And of course, what we're talking about is two registers that are necessarily opposed to one another. There's the visual register, the ego. This is the way that Paul, by the way, talks about it. It's the word selim in Greek that it is just a reference to the idol, but it's at the same time, uh, I'm in, in Hebrew, and it, it is at the same time the same as the word, the Greek word ego, ego, I, that is the image. You're describing human subjectivity pitted against itself, the two portions of the ego. What I'm getting at is that we're describing a way of being in the world. There's the way of being in the world that is outside of Christ. And in this understanding, you can manipulate language in those basic two ways. And what you've just described or what you've just said is that there is a third option that cannot arise in philosophy, I think, in a philosophical understanding outside of a Christian understanding or something, or a philosophical or a, even a theological or religious. In other words, what I've said is this is just true. Other than an understanding in which you relate the logos in which Christ then is the word. And this is, as I understand what post-liberal theology is doing, this is what they're saying, that the, the word of Christ, that it absorbs the world, that we understand all words in all language, not in this sense of the disconnected or self-referential sense, but now we have in the word of Christ, we understand that there is a connectivity, that there is a, a continuity and I think that's what the, the very nature of truth is that it coheres then in the person of Christ. Not that we erase the world as we have it, but that in some way there is a continuity in Christ for the world and then in human subjectivity. It's no longer the ego or the I, the object that I'm trying to obtain in and through the thought or the symbolic world or the, the law or whatever you want to call that authoritative, the, the two registers. What I, I think is happening is, well, no, as a part of the body of Christ, it displaces that entire dynamic and that entire construct. And the only thing that I would add to that is uh, the patristic idea of seeds of the word, because all reality is intelligible because it participates in the word. That's also forms the basis of why we can say to something that uh, might belong to another quote religion unquote or idea that we th we initially think is foreign to Christianity might, upon a second look, not be because all that is true, good, and beautiful coheres in Christ and. Wherever we find truth, good, and beauty, we can see how that participates in Christ. And so this is this is going to form the basis, this patristic idea, and this understanding of truth as as the Word, as as the person of Jesus Christ. This is going to inform inform um, post liberals, and in that in the again the repeated 
claim to absorb the, the world as much as you can without remainder. This is what, say, Thomas Aquinas does with Aristotle. This is what Augustine does with the Platonism of his day. You know, this is, this is what Karl Barth does, perhaps, with Hegel, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, that, that in some way they take, in other words, you take Plato, but when you take Plato or you take Aristotle and you take them up into a theological mode, you're still using that language. But in some way, it's no longer the same Plato or the same Aristotle, that there is a richness and coherence there that was not in the original thinker. That's right. And you make it in that way better than it is. This isn't directly tied, but you think of Athanasius and the ancient patristic creed of, of how to view salvation. Athanasius's famous quip is that God became man so that man might become God, or if that is too scandalous, God became a human being so that human beings can become divine. It's the idea that it's not a denigration of, of our nature, but it's an elevation of it. What you find is not just a complete rejection, that all is totally depraved in the Calvinist sense. What is there, what is lacking, is improved upon, and it's elevated to be what it's what it's meant to be in as much as it's true good and beautiful or has that potential yeah that's right i you know the obvious examples from the new testament that paul is in athens and he points to their idols mm -hmm. to begin a, a sermon or you know in the midst of a sermon that there he's taking them from where they are to in other words the idol says to the unknown god that it is a, it's an idol to nothing it's an idol to uh, a mystery to ap a kind of apophatic form of thought. In a sense, what Paul is doing, uh, even in that idol, I've always thought that idolatry is not a singular thing, or even, of course, human religion is not a singular thing. And right there, you know, that when you say the idol is nothing, I know idolaters who agree. That statement in and of itself, the idol for many people, I mean, in the religion, in Buddhism and in Hinduism, that a good Brahmin does not depend upon. He sees the idol as a kind of, like a kind of icon that enables then the recognition of something beyond, that the idol represents an impossibility. So that there is then, there is the possibility for doing what Paul did. But don't we need to take caution here that not everything, can be absorbed, that not everything can be taken up. This is simply not true, and not all thought, and not all religion, and not all human practices are equal. Yeah, that's that's right. But here would be where we need to eschew the want of making theories about when and where to do this, and allow that to be more ad hoc. So as as we encounter it, then we take it on its on its own terms rather than have a general theory about how to do this. So we don't say, oh, the human religions, it's all with the demons. Yeah, that's right. Vice versa, we don't say, oh, human religion, that is a vehicle to the truth, and we can use all human religions equally well. That's right. And and this is a critique I have, critique I ultimately have with someone like Karl Barth, is he gets so into his dialectical mode that he'll end up saying that all religion is idolatry and that that seems to allow for no ambiguity and it 
allows for a lot of cognitive dissonance, I think, when you encounter something that seems genuinely to be good insofar as, you know, it nears or approximates the gospel. But that's also where it can be so dangerous, too. I should be clear about that as well. Yeah, this is, I guess, the criticism that, and, and I'm never sure, I, I'm not enough of a Barkian scholar to, to, to know if the, the criticism sticks, that in some way uh, that what you get in Bart is a kind of ghetto, that you end up, you know, as you said of Bart, well, he's, uh, Wittgenstein said that he's just gesticulating with words that in some way. And of course, Bart, I think it's his brother that's a philosopher. And so there are places in which Bart, uh, I assume that when he's talking about nothing and something, he does that whole thing with uh, in, in somewhere in the dogmatics. And I think he's engaging Heidegger. I don't know if he actually names Heidegger. Mm-hmm. So that is a criticism. And you're presuming that criticism mm-hmm. is the case. Yes, dialectic is such a such an easy mode to fall into. But the problem with dialectic, of course, is that you forget about the other things. You forget about ambiguity. You forget about teasing things out. It's an all-consuming project, and it's always pitted as an as an either or. Uh, are you saying Bart is simply a dialectical theologian? I'm not saying he's simply that, but he is surely that. He he strikes me as being that. Uh, very dialectic. And that is a, a, a thread in his thought that I think is there right at the beginning and right up there till the end. So you think he doesn't escape that? No, I do not. So this, but this is, of course, it's Bart that the post-liberals are using. Mm-hmm. And so how are, is this where they're departing from Bart? I think that some of them would de- depart from Bart in this way, but they're not all using Bart in the exact same way. Uh, For example, Hans Frey is going to use Bart's reading of scripture as a way of getting past the historical critical impasse. But someone like Kathy Tanner is going to read Bart for his speculative metaphysics and what he can tell us about human and divine freedom. And so she's actually, in a a work like Christ the Key, going to put Bart in conversation with Thomas Aquinas and make it seem like... the two had no differences whatsoever. Again, it, it depends on who you get amongst the post-liberals, but the benefit of somebody like Bart is that he was so prolific and such a great mind that there's not just one thing there to get. I mean, that's why I, even though I feel like I've, I've gotten past Bart, still return to him and find him so engaging is because when he's wrong, he is interestingly wrong. And when he's right, he, he's just clearly right. The problem, of course, is that Bart seemed to misunderstand Aquinas. I would say so. And I think most folks who are not hardcore Bartians would say that as well. And I think Bart was willing to grant that as well, that he he could be getting him wrong. And this pertains to our discussion about language, I think. That is, in what sense did he uh, misunderstand the Analogiantus. He says the Analogiantus is of the Antichrist. I presume that what he's thinking is not really Aquinas, but the received understanding of Aquinas as you're getting through Don Scotus. That is what is happening. And, and maybe I'll narrate this wrong and you'll have to correct me. Is that in the theology that flows out of or is presuming to flow out of Thomas Aquinas, what you have really is a reduction once again of the capacity of human language per se in and of itself human thought human reason however you want to say that or if you just want to refer to being 
the being of the world, that in some way that it's adequate, you know, and people point back to Thomas's of five ways and they say, well, look, see, he's just starting with reason and rational thought and he's going to build upon this. And this is what Bart is taking to presume, even though Aquinas isn't using the language of analogy, analogiantis in that sense. And Bart is presuming, oh yeah, they're right that Aquinas is just more of the same of a kind of modernist notion that there is something foundational other than Christ. And so it is a kind of misunderstood reception of Aquinas that Bart is rejecting. In other words, the thing that he's rejecting, we can agree with, right? And that just that he didn't get it right in terms of Aquinas. I, I think that's the consensus, is that what he's rejecting, we, we ought to reject as well. But there are there are folks who who do think that that Bart understood uh, the analogia entis, and I think you know pursuing that conversation in a later podcast would be interesting. I think that sets us up for yeah doing a doing another one <laughs> uh, because the the of course we well, I think we're really on topic here. I think it's the same topic, it's the same stream of thought, but then the way that this manifested itself in a variety of places, radical orthodoxy, nouvelle theology, post-liberalism. In a sense, they're all working in a, in a kind of a, a similar frame. I don't know how to, what you call all of these things or if, you, if they all hold together. But in a sense, they've all moved beyond the whole fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. And that's why the the title post-liberal theology is a really difficult one, because what do you mean? Do you mean the folks that studied at Yale? Well, okay, how do you unite those with the the radical orthodox thinkers like Pitstock and Ward and uh, Milbank who did not study at Yale? And in fact... Uh, were not even on this continent uh, when they were coming to their various insights. Or what do you do with the narrative theologians like Robert Jensen, or you might even throw James McClendon in here, who again did not study at Yale and came from different traditions. Uh, In the case of Jensen, Midwest Lutheran, uh, McClendon as a a lowercase Baptist. Uh, So what do you do with them? And and so I just want to be clear here and kind of show my cards, that when I talk about post-liberal theology, I mean almost exclusively the Yale School. So the Yale School for me is is something very clearly different than the narrative theology or radical orthodox. And it might be best now, I'm thinking of this on the spot, if we say post-liberal theology en- encompasses all three of those those trains of thought that maybe we should stop, as I've done for so long, referring to the Yale School folks as the post-liberals, and then, and in fact, incorporate these other ones. That post-liberalism is a broader category than the other categories. Yes, um, and so most of the most of the folks that I've studied have been the Yale School people, though I've I've read Jensen and McClendon uh, in a significant manner, but. Um, I think if we're not clear about those distinctions, then we'll, we'll wind up not knowing what's really going on and and uh, where the debates are and where the criticisms are, are being had. Because radical Orthodox folks are going to have criticisms to the Yale School people, and Yale School people are going to have criticisms to, to the radical Orthodox and the narrative theologians and and uh, that sort of thing. Oh, that would be wonderful to sort that out. 
<laughs> well, that'd probably be a dissertation. Um, so if, if you feel like doing a second or a third one, you know, you can uh, do that. But yeah, we should we should tease that out. Let's plan a part two. Aiden, this, is, uh, this has been great. This has been a wonderful conversation. I think actually we have two conversations here. Okay. Well, it's been fun. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.